From the MPBN studios, I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Last night on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Apple CEO Tim Cook danced around questions of whether his company is working on a self-driving car. But rumors out of Silicon Valley are that the Cupertino-based company is looking to get into the car market. We have our car experts back on the show to talk about self-driving cars, as well as the different options found on most new cars and what you should consider in the face of lower gas prices, among things. On the line from the studios of New Hampshire Public Radio, Jamie Page Deaton. She is auto editor for U.S. News and World Report, and John Paul, senior manager of public affairs for AAA Northeast and a master mechanic. As always, we want to hear from you. What car questions do you have for our experts today? Give us a call. Our phone number 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. Our email address, talk at mpbn.net. You can send a tweet at Maine Calling or post to the Maine Calling Facebook page. For those of you who are hearing John, Paul, and Jamie for the first time, we always start the program by asking what they've been driving lately because as uh, members of the automobile press, you guys get a new car every week. <laughs> and John, Paul, what about you? What, what have you been driving lately? And what do you think of it? Well, I had some pretty interesting rides in the last uh, month or so since we've spoken, and one of them was the BMW i8. And that's a hybrid performance car with gull wing doors. Uh, Just a a crazy car, about $140,000, gets ridiculously good gas mileage. And on top of that, it's stupidly fast. So it was was a lot of fun. And on that same sort of vein, the Mercedes-Benz SL63 AMG, a two-door Roadster, puts the top down, 577 horsepower, uh, and then I drove a Ford, Ford Escape. So, you know, so I had, I had all these glorious sports, sports cars to drive and a very nice, practical little SUV. Okay, and uh, any thoughts about anybody who might be in the market for those? I, I suspect more of our listeners would be in the market for a Ford Escape than the other two, but... <laughs> As as would I, um, <laughs> but the uh, the uh, the the BMW i8 uh, because it's a hybrid electric car, uh, it actually really appeals to sort of the, you know for the people that can afford a hundred plus thousand dollar car, but it really appeals to sort of the real tech savvy sort of people and also very limber because it is um, not the easiest car to get in and out of. Okay, Jamie, what about you? Oh, I haven't been having it quite as much fun as John has, but I did uh, just finish up a little bit of time in the uh, 2015 Chevy Silverado, which, I mean, anytime I get a truck, it just reminds me how much I enjoy owning a truck. And, you know, this was a um, an extended cab model, which, you know, wasn't as much space as I would have liked, not quite a crew cab, you know, for fitting in the, in the car seats and everything. But in terms of just absolute usability and utility, um, it was tough to beat. I actually had some trees that needed to come down on uh, my property, so... My husband cut them down, then we cut the wood up, loaded it in the back of the truck, and we're able to easily drive it to the back of the pasture and throw it on the burn pile. So um, it's just, you know, nice to have a truck. And then this week I'm in the uh, Toyota Sienna, which actually I picked up last night, um, and 
then have driven today. And as usual, I was running late and really just kind of noticed that, hey, you know, when you're in a hurry, the Sienna doesn't quite let you down like you might expect from a minivan. You can, you know, I didn't steal this one, but I was certainly driving it like I did. And uh, the the, uh, Sienna kept up quite well. Um, And the other nice thing about it is my daughter, when she got in it this morning, first she was really impressed with the automatic opening doors um, because I had her say open sesame while I hit the button and the doors opened on their own. And she was pretty impressed with that. But then she immediately gets in the back seat and says, oh, my gosh, there's so much room, which um, I am expecting Toyota to send her a check at some point uh, for saying that. But it's, you know, just one of those things that, you know, people look down on minivans, but they're really the Swiss Army knife of cars like they can uh, for family life. It's really tough to beat. Okay, so right now there's a big auto show going on in Germany and all the oohs and ahs are over the uh, uh, concept car put out by Porsche, an all-electric with all sorts of um, uh, potentially all kinds of bells and whistles. Have you all been following the story of this? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, now the, you know, the, the halo car is no longer for a lot of car companies is no longer going to be the car with the monster, you know, V8 or V10 or V12 engine. It's all about the electric car and the electric supercar. Um, and we have Tesla to thank for that. They've really put pressure on other luxury automakers to bring, you know, step up their game and bring the kind of electric cars that uh, early adopters with the money to spend, you know, whether they're spending, a, you know, $140,000 like on the BMW i8 or um, spending, you know, a lot more on some of the other luxury cars, you know, they, they want these cars to not have any compromises. So they want that instant speed that you get with an electric motor, that instant torque that can really rocket the car, um, you know, from a stop. And, you know, Porsche's got to, if they want to continue gaining customers, they've got to step up their game as well. I mean, they are a, you know, they see themselves as a performance supercar manufacturer, and they're going to do one with an uh, all-electric powertrain. It's interesting to me that so much of the news out of this um, auto show in Frankfurt is about electric and hybrid cars, Volkswagen announcing 20 models by 2020. And um, John Paul, thinking about that, at the same time, we have this news that uh, with gas prices low, there seems to be less of a consumer market for electric and hybrid cars. What's going on? Well, uh, you're right about gas prices being low. Up in Maine right now, you're paying about a dollar twenty less a gallon than you were a year ago. So gas prices certainly have come down. And I think anybody's kind of borders on crazy if they think they're going to, you know, continue to go down without them eventually going back up. So you know, has the electric car sort of hit its, you know, hit its. Uh, uh, invisible wall that they're not going to grow anymore? I don't think so. I think we're, what we're seeing is a kind of a, a progression of where we're going. We're seeing, I'm seeing more charging stations out uh, all over the place between restaurants and rest areas. And, you know, you used to just see them, you know, the, the local town hall would put one in front of their town hall and say, look, we're, we're green. Now we're seeing them more and more uh, as we're seeing uh, uh, performance uh, being a, a real key p- a part of an electric car use, like you said, the new Porsche is certainly one of those. Like Jamie said, uh, we have Tesla to thank for that. Uh, one of Jamie and I's uh, uh, kind of cohorts in the uh, uh, in the automotive world is a fellow by the name of Ezra Dyer. Uh, he did a comparison with the uh, with the Tesla uh, 85D at a drag strip, and I think he outran 11 out of 12 competitors. Mm. So these cars have true performance and once we get to the point where they're where they're all 200 mile per uh, recharge type of cars i think we'll see more and more of that so even though gas prices have come down we're also looking at we're looking at the cars becoming more and more usable and it's not just the people who 
go out and buy the latest tech when it first comes out, and then it sort of fades off, which is what I think we saw originally with electric cars and hybrids. People people liked that technology, bought them, and then they sort of wound down a little bit. But now as they're becoming something that everybody can use, recharge pretty easily, and then drive it for a day or two and then recharge it again. I think it's uh, I think it's going to be really I think electric cars are never going to be more than 10% of the f- uh, vehicle fleet population, but I think we are going to see more and more mainstream electric cars. No longer a boutique audience for them. Um Jamie, I wanted to ask you about um your take on what's going on with electric cars and ask you how nimble are the automobile manufacturers if if right now there's a lull in demand, but if uh, two years from now, there's an increase in demand. How long does it take the automobile manufacturers to respond to that? Well, I mean, it takes manufacturers a while to respond. And this is actually, I mean, with demand being low at the moment, at this point, you know, auto manufacturers, their sales aren't of, of hybrid and electric cars. They're not going to be great. And I would say there's sort of to piggyback on what John was saying, you know, the range needs to increase for them to be have for electric cars to have wider appeal. But the other thing that needs to happen is the price needs to decrease with gas prices as they currently are. I mean, even if they go up, you know, quite a bit, even if they go up another dollar or two, um, an electric car at their current price still doesn't make economic sense for a lot of people because over the life of the car, they're not going to make up um, in fuel savings what they're paying extra up front. But what, um, you know, automakers are going to keep making these electric cars and they're going to keep making hybrid cars even though demand is low because they have corporate average fuel economy standards that they need to meet um, in order in order to avoid, you know, being being sort of slapped by the federal government. Um, and so what they're doing at this point is, you know, they're making all these hybrid and electric cars. They're not making a lot of money on them, but that allows them to have sort of, a you know, an ideal lab and a testing lab to know what they need to do for when demand picks back up. And if you compare where we are now versus where we are, where we were in, say, 2008, Every automaker now has either you know a hybrid car or an electric car that they can offer to consumers, um, or at least a very high um, fuel economy car if it's just a conventionally powered car. Um, so that when demand, you know, when gas prices go back up and demand for these cars, you know, picks back up again, and people start you know trading in their Tahoes for something else, more manufacturers are going to be well positioned to actually take advantage of that shift. If you look back in 2008, there were really very few choices that consumers had if you wanted a really fuel efficient hybrid car. I mean, you basically had to go for the Toyota Prius. Um, you know, you had a Honda Civic hybrid and, you know, GM had a couple of not very good hybrids lying around as well. Um, now, I mean, you can get a hybrid from almost every single manufacturer out there. Um, and so when the gas prices, you know, when they go back up, the automakers will be ready. And wondering what the demand is like in the rest of the world. I know when you're talking about any automotive manufacturer today, you're really talking an international market. And the U.S. is really only a small part of that market. Is there more demand in Europe, in South America, in Africa, in Asia? I think without a doubt. If you look at Tesla's sales, I think Tesla is selling cars all over the world as much as they are in, uh, I think California is probably their biggest market. But it wasn't that long ago, even here in the United States, that you know, you drive around and every once in a while you'd see a Tesla. Now it's starting to, I'm starting to see Teslas on a regular basis. And I think in other parts of the country, we're seeing the same things. And in certain parts of the country where they're not uh, saddled with quite the same safety 
regulations. I think it even makes electric cars maybe even that much more available. But I think, yeah, around the country, any around the world, any vehicle manufacturer has to be a worldwide manufacturer. And what you were saying about how quickly can auto manufacturers respond, it takes it takes about five years from when they first started to kind of sketch out the car before it comes to the market. So it's not just serendipitous that when gas prices went up to, you know, $4 a gallon, that there started to be some electric cars. The vehicle manufacturers were looking for this up front, and Jamie made a really good point. When the sales are a little bit slow, it gives the manufacturers more time to try to come up with something that is going to have real appeal but also be really, really usable at the same time. So let's talk about some other trends in the automotive world. But we talked a little bit in the last program about this new crop of small SUVs. Some of them were not on um, in the manufacturer's parking, or excuse me, in the dealer's parking lots yet, but were on the way. Now that they're available, Jamie, are they popular? Oh, yeah. These <laughs> I mean, automakers are having a hard time keeping these um, subcompact SUVs on the lots. And I mean, we're talking about things or models like the Mazda CX-3, the Buick Encore, the Chevrolet Trax, um, and even the Jeep Renegade. That's one that seems to be um, incredibly popular, at least in New Hampshire. I see a bunch of them on the roads everywhere. Um, And these are, you know, there's a good reason that these SUVs um, are so popular. You know, I think initially a lot of the automakers were targeting, um, you know, younger people, younger families for this, but actually sales among baby boomers um, for subcompact SUVs have been pretty high. And there's a good reason for that. I mean, these are people who, you know, drove their kids around in SUVs. Um, Now their kids are gone and they still want the high driving position that an SUV offers. But I mean, with one of these subcompact SUVs, you can have the footprint of a compact car, but still sit up high, still have all wheel drive, have decent, you know, not great cargo space, but enough for, you know, an empty nesting couple. Um, And then, you know, you have a backseat that's not the most comfortable backseat in the world, but it's usable when you need it if you wanted to just, you know, run a couple of people out to dinner or something like that. Um, And so these are really popular cars. And it's a segment that's, you know, over the last two years or so has really exploded and it's only going to continue to grow. It's also interesting to see, though, I mean, there's one player that has not shown up, you know, sort of to the subcompact SUV party, and that's Toyota, um, which is interesting given that Toyota basically launched the sort of compact crossover um, you know, segment with the RAV4. Um, and now the RAV4 is actually fairly big. Um, and, you know, one of the few um, that you can, one of the few compact SUVs that, that's available with a third row seat. So it's interesting that Toyota hasn't joined, you know, this game of, of co- subcompact SUVs, but almost every other manufacturer has something out there for buyers. John Paul, your thoughts on the subco- subcompact SUV uh, trend? Well, I think Jamie is absolutely right on the money with especially the who that car appeals to. Uh, the, they're just, they give you that visibility and easy entry and exit, which as people are getting a little bit older, getting in and out of a car can be a little bit of a challenge. So now all of a sudden you're getting people that are, you know, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s who want a car that, that isn't a challenge to get in and out of. It's comfortable to get in and out of. You have that higher seating position. You have seats that are more, uh, you know, kitchen chair straight rather than, you know, uh, you know, leaning back and a little bit more uncomfortable. I drove the uh, uh, Chevy Trax for a uh, little bit of time over the summer, and 
I just found it as much as it was. I didn't realize it was as small a car as it was. I had four four adults in it at one time. It was reasonably good at that. I took it to the beach on a crowded beach day, and it fit in about two thirds of a parking space where someone kind of overshot the spot spot in front of me. So it took up very little room. It got really good gas mileage, and it was hard to it was hard to come away and go. You know, this 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 car just isn't designed right. It was designed for an incredible a wide uh, audience and it did pretty much everything pretty pretty well so i think the vehicle manufacturers uh looking at this market uh, yeah originally they really designed the car for 1920 you know up to you know late 20 year olds and in fact it, the appeal is actually a little bit older demographic and 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 the baby boomers i think are looking at these vehicles and saying they really work for them Interesting. Well, on that note, we have to take a quick break. If you'd like to join the conversation, the phone number 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. You can send an email to talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Maine Calling, or post to our Facebook page. Your comments and questions when we come back, this is Maine Calling. Main Calling is made possible by listeners like you and by Sillies and Sillies with a Twist in Portland's East End. Open at 11 Tuesday through Friday and 9 on the weekends with vegan and gluten-free options, sillies.com. I'm Renee Montaigne. Reporting to work at midnight here at NPR West has some upsides and downsides. I mean, I'm often here with David Green, who has a very cheery morning personality, which, by the way, David, I'm not sure if that's an upside or a downside. Let's call it an upside, okay? Okay, we'll call it an upside. We'll add it to the plus side of getting to help you start your day. And now you can help us start our day. When you donate your old car, we'll turn it into Morning Edition. Here's how. For more information, visit mpbn.net and click on the Car Talk Vehicle Donation Program button in the top left corner. And special thanks to Fred in Norwich for donating his Honda Accord. You may have noticed that the host of Marketplace Morning Report has been taking a few days off. David Barncaccio is back in Maine participating in this year's Bike Maine event, which will bring him to Bethel later this afternoon. At 4.45 this afternoon at the Bethel Inn, David will sit down for a wide-ranging conversation from the world of broadcasting to financial markets with MPBN President Mark Vogelzang, and you're invited. If you're in Bethel this afternoon around 4.45, stop in, listen, and ask your own questions if you'd like, and of course, say hello. We'd love to see you. And welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on the program, our car experts. On the line with us, Jamie Page Deaton. She is automobile editor for U.S. News and World Reports. John Paul is senior manager of public affairs for AAA Northeast and a master mechanic. We invite you to join the conversation. Call 1-800-399-3566, 1-800-399-3566. You can send an email to talk at mpbn.net. Tweet at Main Calling or post to our Facebook page. You're welcome to ask questions about maintenance, repairs, car buying, just thinking about the future in uh, your automotive, uh, your family's automotive life. Uh, any question is welcome for our automotive experts. John Paul, wh- what should we be thinking about this time of year? Um, not really time to get ready for winter yet. Uh, what are you advising your customers? Well, it's certainly uh, time to at least figure out where you put the snow tires. You know, <laughs> it might be a little bit early to put them on yet, but it's it's also time. Th- these few months leading up to cold weather are really a good time to think about preventative maintenance. Uh, 
all too often we uh, we hear about people that you know the first real cold snap and all of a sudden their battery just isn't isn't there to be able to do its job anymore the car's just not running as well as it should they haven't thought about uh, the the engine coolant the antifreeze in their car it's been in there for a few years now maybe people have added water or diluted antifreeze to it and all of a sudden now you find that instead of the engine coolant protecting the engine to 35 below zero it's protecting it to just 20 above zero fine for the summertime even into fall just not enough coolant and also just normal kind of checkups looking at all the vital fluids in the car power steering transmission fluid brake fluid look and make sure all those fluids are in good condition look at the belts if it's if you have a car that's one of those cars that's going to need a timing belt at say 60,000 miles or you did it at 60 and it's going to need it 120,000 miles and that's going to put you right in the middle of winter weather maybe do that repair a little bit early so you know that that's taken care of and and that's not going to be something that's going to break in the middle of winter time so again that's sort of preventative things looking looking at the brakes in the car but again uh, i think important for winter weather and we experienced it all over new england last year a good set of snow tires can truly change how a car operates in bad weather all right we're going to start by going to topsom and hearing from david hi david hi go ahead yes uh, my question is, um, I have a diesel um, Volkswagen, five years old, it's still a great car, but what I'm wondering about is with the popularity of electric and hybrid, what is the future for diesel and how does that fit in? The future is really good for diesels. Uh, I think we are going to see more and more diesels. In fact, uh, Jaguar Land Rover announced that they were going to be putting two diesel engines into Jaguars, and they're going to put diesel engines into their Land Rovers to be sold here in the United States. So I think we're going to continue to see diesels, and especially now where the new diesels, even though they have to have a fuel additive to make them run clean, they run as clean as a gasoline car. So I think we're going to continue to see them. And I'm stealing this line from, from Jamie uh, she she said once, I think every automotive journalist would love to drive a uh, diesel wagon with a five-speed transmission, maybe a BMW, but but still, you know, the performance that a diesel gives you, the fuel economy it gives you, in general, dependability, I think, is really pretty good. Jamie, anything to add? But yeah, I think that, you know, your options for diesels are getting, you know, there are just more and more of them available. And diesel is a, you know, it's a fuel that's very popular in Europe, very popular in the rest of the world. So it's very simple for automakers now to bring them on over to the U.S. now that they can have figured out a way to hit our emission standards. Um, So, I mean, you're even seeing diesels in places where you really wouldn't have expected. I mean, there's a diesel Chevy Cruze, which is a compact car. Um, And I think even, you know, a couple of years ago, you wouldn't have expected that. Um, A lot of automakers now are putting um, diesels into their um, compact trucks as well as their full size trucks. Um, so this is, you know, it's, we've, we've got to make sure that, you know, we're getting, you know, better, more fuel efficient cars, more miles per gallon. And, you know, there's a multi-pronged approach that basically the industry is taking towards that. One is using diesel, because I think particularly, I think, you know, if you're in New England, if you're in a rural part of New England, um, a diesel makes a lot more sense um, for, for you than I think a hybrid or an electric car does because of that great highway fuel economy, which is most of the type of driving that you're doing. Um, but, you know, diesel is just one part of the solution to making sure that we're, you know, we have a diversified fleet of um, cars on the road that, you know, use electric power, uses hybrid power, use gasoline power with super, you know, fuel efficient gasoline engines, and then also diesel as well. So the future for diesel, I think, is, is fairly bright. And you're going to see more and more models coming over and not just from European manufacturers, but from American manufacturers as well. 
All right. Thanks, David, for your call. We're going to head up to Presque Isle and Russell. Hi, Russell. Go ahead. You're on main calling. So I was just listening to um, the car experts uh, um, talk about uh, what they expected uh, the electric car market uh, to be. uh, And they said that uh, they expected it would never be more than uh, 10%. I was just reading on uh, Edmunds.com. Uh, comparing the total cost to ownership uh, figures uh, between a Toyota Prius versus a Chevy Volt versus a uh, Leaf. And they found that the the Chevy Volt was cheaper than a Prius and the Leaf was cheaper than a Volt. Um, Some of us don't really buy cars because we like cars. We don't really like cars. We only want cars to go from point A to point B, okay? And realistically, a Chevy Bolt does anything that you might want to do or need to do, more or less, for 50% of the people who drive in Maine. There's no reason why you couldn't drive a Chevy Bolt in, uh, in Maine. I would be driving a Chevy Bolt in Maine if I could pry it away from my wife, who drives it in Massachusetts. All right. Well, um, you know, every time we do this program, we have really serious defenders of electric cars. And it's really interesting when um, they call from a rural area because that is that is the challenge for the electric car um, market. Jamie. Well, I mean, I think, you know, what Russell's hitting on is the Chevy Volt is actually an extended range hybrid car. So it is a car that um, has um, a huge battery pack. It gets um, an electric range. I think right now it's, you know, 50 miles. And I forget what the, the newer 2016 model gets for electric range. And then after that, it has a gasoline engine that kicks in to act as a generator for um, for the car. So it generates its own electric power. Um, and, you know, Russell makes a good point. You know, you, you do these price comparisons and these cars are, you know, less expensive to own. What I think, though, is tough for a lot of people is the initial buy-in for these cars is very high compared to the buy-in for a conventionally powered gasoline car. So yes, over the long term, these cars are cheaper, but not everybody has the resources to make the initial outlay that these cars require. You know, not everybody's going to um, qualify for the financing, for, you know, the $37,000 financing for a Volt or the $30,000 worth of financing for a Leaf. We're going to see a lot of gasoline cars stay on the road for a long, long time simply because that's what people can afford. Um, and whether, and then we're even, even as the new car fleet becomes more and more, you know, electrified and has other alternative fuels, still the used car fleet is going to be dominated by gasoline engines, again, because that's what people can afford. Um, You know, not everybody has the luxury of being able to look at the long-term costs and the long-term investments. You know, most people, they need a car, they need it today. This is how much money they have. This is how much money they can qualify for in terms of financing. And that puts electric and hybrid cars out of reach for a lot of people. Now, once automakers get the prices down, then I think we're going to see, you know, we're going to see them really take off. But at the moment, they're still just relative to conventionally powered gasoline cars. They're still too expensive for the majority of people. Russell, thanks so much for calling. We're going to move on to Jimmy calling from Orono. Hi, Jimmy. Go ahead. Hi, is this click and clack? (laughs) Uh, good afternoon. We have two minivans, one Honda, one Toyota in our family. Uh, that took, referring to uh, what Jamie, uh, John Paul rather, was talking about uh, in terms of vehicle maintenance and timing belts versus timing chains. So the Toyota has almost 300,000 miles on it. It has a timing chain, which has never been touched. The Honda has 90,000 miles on it, and it just had the timing belt replaced under the fear of 
uh, it breaking and the engine destroying itself because it's an interference engine, that's a $1,200 job with all the uh, additional components that Honda suggests you replace along with the timing belt. So my question is, so over the period... If we own the Honda for the same length of time that we own the Toyota, that's uh, $3,600 just to replace timing belts. Why do vehicles have timing belts versus old reliable timing chains? And and I've heard the lighter weight and quieter, well, I can't hear the timing chain on the Toyota minivan, and uh, I also can't notice the difference in weight either. Uh, Is there a good reason why vehicles use a timing belt rather than a timing chain? Thank you. John Palm. Well, originally originally it was because timing belt uh, design engines tended to be overhead cam engines. So inside the engine, there was this thing, this camshaft that opens and closes valves. It was typically at the top of the engine. And a timing belt was something that could be put on an engine that would be able to be very exact on how it opened and closed the valves. The downside is, of course, as that belt starts to deteriorate and wear, just like it would normally on a uh, on 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 any kind of fan belt or drive belt, whether it's whether it's the belt that uh, turns the alternator on your car or the belt that uh, that you know turns your dryer drum at home and on, on your home clothes dryer, uh, eventually the belt is going to fail. So what happens is you you look at this and you say, well, it has to be replaced. Originally, that was the reason. Now we see that more and more manufacturers are getting away from timing belts and they're going to timing chains. So they're going back in the other direction, and the reason was the vehicle manufacturers are able to build a better timing chain these days. And, and, and Jimmy, you're absolutely right. Initially, timing belts were put in because they were quieter, because a longer chain would tend to rattle, it would make noise. Not so much. Not so sure about the lighter part of it, but that was that was part of it. But we are seeing more and more cars, especially it was the, the Asian imports uh, that we were seeing cars that had timing belts that are now being replaced with timing chains. And in a lot of Honda models, and uh, and I'm not sure about the latest Odyssey, but in a lot of Honda models where there was a timing belt, there now there is now a timing chain. All right, Jamie, thanks. uh, Excuse me, Jimmy, thanks for calling in with your question. If you have a question, 1 800 399 3566. 1 800 399 3566. We're talking with our car, our favorite car experts, John Paul and Jamie Page Deaton. A Facebook post from Philip. I'm pondering getting a VW Jetta TDI wagon to replace my Subaru Outback 2009 so that I can get better fuel economy. I'm wondering what your take is on the VW Jetta TDI in terms of overall cost and reliability compared to the Subaru. Thank you. And Jamie, I'll let you start here. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the uh, VW Jetta TDI wagon is a great car. Um, I think compared to the Subaru, you're giving up um, a fair amount in terms of space. Um, And I don't know what trim of the Outback that you have, but, um, you know, some trims of the VW are going to be nicer than, you know, some trims of the Subaru Outback. Um, In terms of reliability, 
Um, you know, what we sort of see in VW reliability is that, you know, the car can just go forever, all the mechanical parts. Um, but when it comes to some of the electronic systems, they can be, you know, they can start to get a little bit buggy with age. Um, Subaru has a fairly good reputation for reliability. So, I mean, honestly, when it comes down to these two cars, um, I'd say it's, you know, six of one, half dozen of another. If you need, you know, the extra space and the all-wheel drive that the Outback offers, then, you know, by all means, get it Outback. But if you want a little bit better fuel economy, um, that diesel reliability and that bulletproof diesel VW engine that's going to just last and last and last. And, um, you know, you can give up some space and also, you know, potentially have some electrical issues um, maybe down the road and you're willing to deal with that, then uh, then go for the VW. All right. John Paul, any thoughts on top of that? No, I think the uh, the Volkswagen TDI is a great choice. I'm not sure for 2000. Uh, 16, I think it's actually now a golf sport wagon. I, I think they've done away with the Jetta uh, wagon version of that. And it's a, it's a, it's a great little car. Again, very functional, high fuel economy. Also, when you factor in the fuel economy on all of these cars, remember that the newest cars have to add this additive, this uh, stuff called Add Blue. It's an exhaust fluid. So, f- kind of factor that in because there is a little cost involved in that. But I think uh, I think the uh, the wagon itself is a is a great vehicle. Uh, it's it's roomy, it's comfortable, and it's it's actually a fun car to drive. And I think the the latest um, Golf version of the wagon feels more Audi like than. Uh, than Volkswagen like, which I, I just I just find a little bit better. And our previous caller, Jimmy, I just looked, if he goes out and buys the two thousand fifteen Honda Odyssey minivan, it has a timing chain. Ha. So we are going to take another short break. When we return, more of your comments and questions. Please stay with us. You make Maine calling possible, as do Casella. Committed to improving Maine's air quality through the conversion of landfill gas to energy, Casella, giving resources new life. And Maine Medical Center, getting people back to where they belong, home. Learn more at mainemedicalcenter.org. Hi, I'm Scott Simon. So many things I love in life. My wife, my daughters, Chicago, raindrops on roses, whiskers on kittens. I've never loved cars. But then I found out you can donate your old car to this station and turn it into things that you and I both love. Morning edition, weekend edition, fresh air, all things considered. Wouldn't it be great to turn your car into something we all love? For more information, visit mpbn.net and click on the Car Talk Vehicle Donation Program button in the top left corner. And special thanks to John in Parsonsfield for his donation of a Ford F-150 pickup truck. Join us this afternoon at 1 o'clock following Maine Calling for World Affairs. This program will feature two conversations on the topics of Internet privacy and security with a specific focus on extending an open and secure Internet to areas without access. That's World Affairs coming up this afternoon following Maine Calling at 1 o'clock here on MPBN Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you're listening to Maine Calling. Today on the program are car experts John Paul and Jamie Page Deaton. John Paul is a senior manager of public affairs for AAA Northeast and a master mechanic. Jamie Page Deaton is automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. Join our conversation. Give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. And we want to, since we are speaking of cars, remind you that MPBN is holding its inaugural Common Ground Fair Challenge, hoping to have 100 cars donated to our vehicle donation 
program by the end of the fair. All the details can be found at mpbn.net. We have an email from Greg in Troy. He writes, NPR has reported that Ford is considering bringing the Ranger back to North America. It's sold everywhere else. In South Africa and Australia, they sell a terrific Ranger, small diesel, single cab, long bed, seven foot plus, hooks on the outside and more. Not a modern El Camino or Ranchera, something tops for the trades. Will they do it? Jamie, do you have the answer? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't work at Ford, but I uh, just have to say if Ford doesn't do it, um, they're leaving some money on the table. That's because, you know, a lot of other automakers have brought out, you know, and brought back their compact pickup trucks. Um, you know, we see Chevy bringing out their Colorado and GMC brought out the Canyon. Toyota just redesigned the Tacoma. Um, and these are a great crop of small trucks that work for people who actually have some work to do, but also work for people who, you know, have weekend or just weekend warriors and also, you know, need, need a truck that they can commute in, but also take, you know, their ATVs up on the trail on the weekend. Um, and so, I really do, you know, and this, this rumor for, about bringing the Ranger back um, to the U.S. has been swirling for a long time, and I do think Ford will do it. Um, but, you know, they they do have some stiff competition. I mean, I think the vast majority of compact truck sales are the Toyota Tacoma. Um, and so in order to gain sales back, Ford is going to have to do a little bit of, um, you know, rewriting history because the, the, the Ranger that was sold here that, that went away was not very good. It was not a particularly safe truck. It was not a powerful truck. It was not a comfortable truck. Um, so it was really missing out on the sort of aspects that, People who are using trucks every day, you know, who are commuting with them and then just using sort of their capabilities on weekends, it was missing out on a lot of what those buyers are looking for. It wasn't really a good car to live with on a daily basis. It was great to, you know, throw your trash in the back and drive on down to the dump if that was all you were doing. Uh, But beyond that, it was not a great truck. So the one that they're making now and selling in other parts of the world, by all accounts, is a really great compact truck that has what buyers are looking for. Um, But Ford's going to have to do a little bit of marketing work to uh, sort of erase the stain of the old Ranger from people's memories. Um, But once they get here, I mean, it'll be so great to see the compact pickup truck market heat up and actually have some good viable competition for the Tacoma because honestly, you know, that sort of thing is when automakers are pushing each other, it's only good for consumers because we get better products. All right, John Paul, I have an email question for you. This is from Cindy and Wells. She writes, I just got a new timing belt. Hmm, We've got a theme going on today on our show. I've, I've just got a new timing belt courtesy of the mouse who built a nest in my engine. Someone suggested dryer sheets. I'm concerned about having the paper and chemicals in a hot engine. I sprayed the garage floor and doorways with the critter spray I use in the garden. Thought the mouse might not want to cross the sprayed floor to get into the car. It's fall in Maine. Do you have any other ideas? Please don't tell me to move to the city. Thanks. Uh, Well, you could buy a cat or an owl. (laughs) Uh, um, it's there, uh, uh, dryer sheets are one of those things that people say can, can work and, and help keep, uh, critters away. The other one is, uh, oil of spearmint. And you can buy these things at a, at a good hardware store. They sort of look like tea bags and they actually have, um, oil of spearmint, spearmint in them. And you can kind of put them around the inside of the car. So they, don't smell like mothballs, so which is kind of another old wives' tale. Uh, the critter spray, I've seen some of it. There's also a couple other products. What they're supposed to do is uh, replic- replicate a um, uh, some predator of mice. Uh, so it, you know, it's 
I don't. I, I I've heard good and bad results with that. The biggest thing is if you're parking a car in a barn or a garage, take away anything that would tend to attract critters, uh, water, uh, bird seed, uh, anything. You know, uh, animal food. You know, dog, cat food, things like that that will tend to attract um, animals like that. And these, unfortunately, these little critters can build a pretty substantial nest in just a 24-hour period, and they can cause damage. I haven't heard so much of a timing belt issue, but I've heard an awful lot of wiring issues. And as vehicle manufacturers have gone to, gone away from petroleum-based wiring products, uh, so the wire covered with a petroleum-based plastic, they've gone to these soy-based, and apparently a soy-based wiring cover tastes very good to a mouse oh lovely okay that's a great question for most of us here in maine who uh, know a little bit about mice we're going to go up to norridgewalk and wayne hi wayne go ahead yes my question mainly pertains to uh, electric cars strictly electric but since electric cars don't have the cooling system the mechanical uh, parts going on that a gasoline engine does um does it offset the maintenance cost on the long term to have an electric car um, and also the longevity of the battery when a battery finally lives out its lifetime the cost which is enormous to replace that battery is that when somebody would just offset that by buying another one and just leave that car there's an opportunity for somebody else to buy at a cheaper rate but mainly i guess my question is about maintenance uh, on an electric vehicle strictly electric as opposed to one that um, has or like a hybrid that has the mechanical function as well Uh uh-huh john well there's certain things depending on how sophisticated the electric vehicle is there's still some maintenance involved there's not going to be engine oil maintenance but some electric vehicles actually use a cooling pump and there's a there's a, a lubricant that needs to be at least checked periodically but you're right over the long term it's pretty straightforward but there is some sort of an automatic transmission there's still brakes there's still steering components the brakes last much longer because of regenerative braking so you're not replacing brake pads quite as often but still you really have to look at the you look at a fairly modern new car for the first five years of ownership with the exception of changing the oil um, and maybe at five years replacing a set of tires depending on how you drive there isn't really a lot of ownership costs as it starts to get five to ten years old certainly that's the case and as it starts to get older still more where the electric car is going to be let's call it zero maintenance for quite a period of time. And then, um, uh, as you pointed out, there's going to be that great big expense with a battery replacement. Depending on where battery prices go and development goes, those prices could come down. I, For a hybrid, I looked up a replacement cost of a Honda Civic hybrid battery, and there's a small company in New York that's rebuilding them, uh, the, and the batteries are four or $500, where uh, not that many years ago it was four or $5,000. And the one thing we keep forgetting about electric cars, everybody who drives an electric car doesn't contribute to um, gas tax. And it's that gas tax that actually helps pay to maintain the roads and bridges. So at some point, I'm afraid that all these electric cars are going to be, there's going to be something that's going to look at, well, you drive it on the road and you, you're deteriorating the road. So there may be an extra cost involved with that as well. 
Wayne, thanks for your call. We're going to head up to Blue Hill and Josh. Hi, Josh. Go ahead. Hi. Um, can you hear me? I can. Good. Okay. Well, I need a car that can go up a hill in the snow on a bad dirt road. So I need a car that has good clearance and has all-wheel drive. I've tried I've tried a Jetta TDI, which is great for mileage, but it can't get up my hill. So you um, want a car, not an SUV? I don't really want to have an SUV. I don't really want to have a truck. I, I wish there was a diesel or, um, or a hybrid or an electric that was all-wheel drive and had good clearance. But as far as I know, nothing like that exists. Jamie, thoughts? Well, I mean, the first thing that jumped to mind was a Subaru Legacy. Um, it's got standard all-wheel drive. I'm sure if you put snow tires on it, um, it would be able to handle a hill. The clearance on it, I mean, honestly, like to get a car with actual clearance is going to be really tough. That's when you're going to have to go look at, you know, an SUV or a crossover. Um, but once you sort of open up, you know, to those, I mean, you can get quite a, a, a nice, um, the Subaru XV Crosstrek has all-wheel drive. It's available as a hybrid. It's not quite, you know, it's it's Basically, I mean, to my mind, it looks like a tall hatchback. Um, so it's not a full-on SUV, but it does have a little bit of extra ground clearance. Um, and again, it's one of those that you put snow tires on, um, you would be good to go. And there's a sort of legendary press trip that when the XV Crosstrek Hybrid launched that Subaru took a bunch of journalists on, and fortunately, I was not on it. Um, but they basically took journalists to Iceland and had them driving all around the backcountry in Iceland when they were overtaken by a giant blizzard. Um, and what was supposed to be a 45-minute drive to a nice lodge where they'd eat gourmet food turned into a uh, six or seven hour ordeal um, where they had these giant um, sort of Icelandic snow vehicles that were supposed to be there in case anybody got stuck um, and those kept getting stuck but these cross-track hybrids did not um, and everybody made it up to the lodge just fine and they had to go you know quite slowly but um, I think for a lot of automotive journalists that really sealed it that these um, you know these little hybrids from Subaru they can do really, you know, what most people would need them to do and even beyond that. So, I mean, you know, if you've got a hill on a bad dirt road um, that gets snowy, because let's face it, you're in Maine, it's going to get snowy, um, consider the Subaru XV Crosstrek Hybrid. Um, and then, you know, if you absolutely have to have a sedan or something that's strictly a car, I mean, take a look at the Subaru Legacy or um, the Subaru Impreza as well. There are just aren't that many all-wheel drive cars out there. Um, so you're sort of limiting yourself. But once you say, all right, I'll take a little look at some of these small crossovers, then uh, you have a lot more options. Josh, thanks for your call. And I'm sure you are answer asking a question a lot of people want to know the answer to. Going to Winterport. And Paul, hi, Paul, go ahead. Uh, yes, I'd like to have a comparison between Ford, Dodge, GMC, and, and Chevy pickups uh, as relate to handling a slide-in camper. What would be a preference, especially in the used pickup line side? Jamie, you want to well, check? Oh, John, John, go ahead. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that, that's an interesting question because it really depends on stability of the vehicle and how big the sliding camper is going to be and the rear suspension and how it how it sets up and especially used how it was treated before you got it. I I was uh, I was always somebody who sort of liked Ford vehicles. I thought they were I thought they were great vehicles. They they still are. And then I sort of transi transitioned over to Chevrolet and GMC. I find the handling I find the handling very good with a lot of weight in the back. And I've never driven one with a sliding camper, but I put a lot of weight in the back of of a of a Chevy truck, and I found it to be a very very capable truck. I would lean towards the Chevrolet or GMC, uh, and with maybe the heavy duty suspension, I think I think you're going to find that's a that's a pretty good choice. 
Dodge offers, uh, or Ram today offers the, offers a diesel version. And even in a new Ram, you can get the lighter Ram, the half-ton Ram with a diesel engine in it, which is a very, which is a very, very capable vehicle. So I think it's really going to be, if you're looking used, if you're looking at something four or five years old, it's really going to be how it was treated before you got it and what that suspension's like because a sliding camper is all about the weight and how it's going to handle that weight. And if somebody's been using it as a real truck and their springs are tired, their shocks are tired, uh, then it's going to be whatever it is isn't going to be a good choice for you. But if you're looking new or new-ish, I've turned into a real fan of the uh, of the Chevy and GMC trucks. Uh, and, John, would you recommend Paul take a, a truck that he's thinking about buying to a mechanic to look at those very, um, you know, the shocks and the other things that you mentioned? If you're looking at a used car that's more than, say, a year or so old, I recommend, or a truck for that matter, recommend going to a good uh, repair technician, have them look over the car, tell them that you're considering buying the car, and do this before you spend a nickel on the car. Don't go into it and say, yeah, I'll go buy it, and I know the, you know, the used car dealer or repair shop or whatever the case is will take care of anything that's wrong with the car when I do it. Do that ahead of time. Go back, go back and use that as a negotiating tactic with your price too. So definitely have that car checked out. Too often, sometimes there may have been modifications made to the truck. It may be a, it may be a great four wheel drive truck and all of a sudden you look and you see that there was a plow frame on the truck at one time, a heavy duty trailer hitch on the back of the truck at one time, and you see all these holes where things were installed and that truck may have been worked a whole lot harder than what you expected or what you think it was when you first looked at it. All right. Well, Paul, thanks for your question. We have just a little bit of time left. Tom, can you ask your, Tom and Searsport, can you ask your question quickly? Yeah, just a quick comment. I, the big gorilla in the room is the uh, Chevy Volt. Uh, they're coming off lease, and they're, you're seeing, I'm seeing an awful lot of them 2011-12s for around ten grand, which is a great price. The other thing is the batteries. The GM is selling new Chevy batteries. You can find them online, GM online, for 2300 bucks. So this is going to be a revolutionary, and GM is it, it, it's heartening that GM and Ford too with the Fusion are doing these things because this is really going to push these cars way into the market further than they are. All right, That's Tom, it. you're our last comment of the day. Thanks so much, and and thank you, Jamie and John, as always, for joining us. Jamie Page Deaton, the automotive editor for U.S. News and World Report. John Paul is senior manager of public affairs for AAA Northeast and a master mechanic. John Keimel ran the board today. You can find past editions of Maine Calling, a link to our audio archives, and a way to sign up for our podcast by visiting mpbn.net slash maincalling. Today's program will be rebroadcast this evening at midnight, and the executive producer of Maine Calling is Jonathan Smith. Tomorrow on the program, join host Keith Shortall for a conversation about what's being done on the front lines of the efforts to help those with an opiate addiction. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and you've been listening to Maine Calling on the Maine Public Broadcasting Network.